from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The continuing resolution to keep the government open doesn't include major anomalies for the Defense Department. The CR Congress sent to the White House for President Trump's signature Wednesday would run through December 11th. The new fiscal year begins tonight at midnight. Brian Davis is the new nominee to become Assistant Secretary of Defense for Manpower and Reserve Affairs. He's the director of the department's Defense Personnel and Family Support Center now. Politico reports he's a retired Air Force pilot, both active duty and reserve. Army Cyber Command will expand its mission to include what it, its commander calls information advantage and decision dominance. Lieutenant General Stephen Fogarty calls the new direction for the command, quote, pre-decisional. FedScoop reports Fogarty says the service is still working out the definitions of those terms. The Pentagon's target fleet size could move from 355 ships to as many as 530. Defense News reports documents from the future Navy force study show the Defense Department could push for a bigger fleet with a new emphasis on smaller and lightly manned vessels. Mackenzie Eaglin's resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Mackenzie, welcome. Thanks for coming on. You're a budget expert as much as anything else. Where are we going to get the money to pay for 530 ships if we weren't really going to be able to do 355 anytime soon? Well, that's a great question, and it starts at the top. And by the top, I don't mean Navy leadership. I mean the Secretary of Defense. And so he has done what he's supposed to do. He's taken that on as a cause celeb, and he has started advocating for a couple of different things. He wants Congress to approve allowing expiring funds at the end of the year to just automatically roll over into the Navy shipbuilding account, and he wants just generally more money for Navy shipbuilding. He doesn't want the Navy to have to take it out of hide. He doesn't want the Columbia-class submarine to eat up all the other funds. He just wants more money free and clear. Now, we don't know if he'll get it, but this really truly is the first step. Otherwise, it was a hopeless cause. What strikes me about everything that you just said is that it's possible. Like, it, it's not, when I first heard the number headed it, it, it into the fives, I thought this is just kind of silly. And then as I see that argument, as I see the way that this is potentially mapped out, this could potentially work, couldn't it? There certainly is the political will to do this. There's a groundswell of support already in Congress. I'd say shipbuilding is the single most popular priority, just generally speaking, in the defense budget. Now, right, that's where it gets testy is where do you get money either from other defense priorities or from other federal spending priorities in the discretionary budget? Uh, and that's really where you know everybody gets confused or disagrees. If the White House and the White House Budget Office can figure that out, then the money can come in a, you know, free and clear above the defense top line for the 22 budget, which is going to come over here um, you know, just in the right after the new year. It's possible. And it, I'd say if the White House could figure it out, Congress would support it. The, the, what is at hand here is a group of fleet constructs that came from various places that Secretary Esper has commissioned to give him a, 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 a fleet assessment. This, what is, what's going on here that I think is interesting is 
a completely different mix of ships than we've talked about in any of the numbers that we've looked at before here. What did you see as you looked at the various proposals for what the mix of ships should look like, Mackenzie? You see a couple of common trends and threads between all of the plans. So a lot more smaller ships, right? So cruisers, frigates, corvettes, a lot more unmanned ships, robot ships, some surface, but most of them undersea to help with things like anti-submarine warfare, for example, and less sophisticated ships, right? So moving away from the super high technology and therefore more expensive capabilities like destroyers and aircraft carriers. What does that say to you about the way that at least this Department of Defense leadership plans to execute on the national defense strategy or is thinking toward executing on the national defense strategy? It does signal that they are trying to sort of create confusion in our competitors' minds, namely China, but also to a lesser extent, Russia. The thinking here is that more numerous, even if in some cases they're slightly less capable ships, but they can be dispersed and distributed, right, which you've heard the Commandant of the Marine Corps talk about in the past as well, uh, that therefore they could pop up anywhere and sail in companies and support manned ships and just sow doubt or, and or confusion about where they might go next. That's something that Secretary Esper has talked a lot about, that he they he wants the force to be flexible. You know, fewer forward, permanently forward deployed forces, more pop-up and rotational and surprise um, exercising forces. And so this would support that type of a, a, a presence. What it does signal though, and this is what I haven't seen from the secretary, is it would fundamentally change the US Navy's you know, deployment posture and just the way it is set up now it is a presence Navy. This would be more of a warfighting Navy. And I don't think that debate has been settled inside the department fully. And it certainly isn't settled with Capitol Hill. You mentioned General Berger, the Commandant of the Marine Corps. He has proposed a, a really ambitious change in the way that the Marine Corps is structured. What's the connective tissue here? What's the intersection of those two strategies, Mackenzie? That's a great question. Well, for starters, he's proposing, you know, to divest a lot of things that are on land and to be more expeditionary at sea. And so where do you get that money? Well, you give up things like tanks and artillery and infantry and in some cases, helicopters. Uh, but the connective tissue, uh, I hope, is are the operational concepts. So we have a preview of that from the Commandant. What we don't have is that similar document from the Navy. Presumably, Francis, these are all linked together in like one swirl, right? The force structure assessment, the 30-year shipbuilding plan, and the Navy's operational concept. We're due a joint concept by the end of this year, according to Secretary Esper and others. So presumably the Navy's is done and the connective tissue between the Commandant and the CNO, uh, the Navy leadership, are these concepts and how the ships will be um, used and deployed together. We kind of two Navy leaders sort of preview where they want to go with some of this. I just don't know if those two leaders are speaking for the whole Navy, you know, where they talk about what I mentioned before, where you have uh, unmanned ships sailing in companies with man some manned ships. Um, you know, they're serving as a sensor and a shooter. They're supporting mine laying. They're supporting anti-submarine warfare. Those are concepts. That's interesting. They're trying to solve an operational challenge. But again, does does big Navy agree with that? And I think that's been one of the holdups for why all of these documents are in a buy-in. Mackenzie Eaglin, thanks very much as always. Appreciate your insight. Thank you. Up next, shaping the next generation of digital service members to sharpen the tip of the spear. Straight ahead on Government Matters, creating a West Point for advanced computing and artificial intelligence.
Welcome back. The military struggles to recruit and retain the talent it needs to make the most of emerging technologies. The National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence has pitched the idea for a digital service academy modeled after West Point that could train civilians to address high-tech issues of the future. Harrison Schramm is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. Todd Lyons is vice president of the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. They're writing about a U.S. digital service academy in War on the Rocks. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Um, you write in this piece something that I think is a, a, a fascinating observation, that this, this academy should be porous in the sense that professionals can flow freely between government and industry. That concept is different than the service academies that we have now. How do you envision that that would work? Either one of you may take that question. So, so to start with, as a Naval Academy graduate, uh, the service academies are porous in the sense that there's a cadre of uh, professional military officers that rotate in and out that uh, bring their fleet experience uh, to, to the academy. Uh, in the case of a digitally focused uh, educational endeavor, uh, we would be looking for those people to be porous in the sense of having uh, operational tours uh, in government or coming back and forth from industry. What's and beyond that, I would actually say that it's also about making it porous to industry as well as uh, broader academia. So thinking through ways that we could make it uh, easier for them to provide their best talent in, in the kinds of slices that they would like, and then having the talent that's at the Digital Service Academy go and learn more, work with the commercial sector that provides many of the services that we rely on. One of the suggestions that you make in this piece is uh, to that point, imagine having the best minds in AI at Microsoft, Google, Apple, Facebook, et cetera, spend 10% of their time teaching the fundamentals of their latest technology to the next generation. We've seen some reticence among some of those companies to work at all with the federal government. What's the selling point that one would use to encourage them that maybe they're not crazy about some of the other work that uh, the government is doing, but that a digital service academy holds value for them to interact with? So for both of us uh, being uh, former military officers, government work is important and, and the work of the nation is, uh, it's important. It impacts people's lives. And so there's a tremendous draw uh, to service uh, for people uh, regardless of their discipline. And I'd highlight that it's really about establishing the Digital Service Academy as a public trust. And so if they want to be part of the solution that develops the ethical conduct, how we're going to adopt this uh, set of really enabling technologies more broadly, that we need to have them involved in that. And I think if we offer them the opportunity to shape how we're going to do adoption and and do ethical uh, adoption of AI, they're gonna to wanna to be part of that process. I read between the lines, gentlemen, a uh, reference to the National Defense Strategy. Please correct me if I'm wrong. The digital service and the academy that supports it would be a first step toward the whole of government approaches that are used by America's competitors, specifically China. What, uh, does, what disadvantage do we have now in that whole of government approach or lack thereof that this uh, concept would help remedy? I think it would. I think it would give uh, people, particularly in the disciplines of AI and machine learning, a common framework 
uh, from which to begin. And that's something that the service academies do uh, as, uh, and in addition to the educational pieces. But imagine a, uh, a, a government-run institution that would, uh, that would collect the talent from across the country and uh, bring those folks up and then give them opportunities to serve in government and then follow on moving back and forth between government and uh, it, you know, uh, industry for a very long and prosperous career. And I think from the perspective of the great power competition more broadly and our allies and partners, we really want to give uh, the allies, partners, those in the middle, a reason to choose to follow us and how we adopt artificial intelligence and its enabling technologies rather than following a more of a Chinese model. And I think by doing that, by providing a common framework for our own government to lead the adoption of that, we'll then create a broader framework for our partners and allies to follow and trace. We have about 90 seconds left, gentlemen, and I appreciate it when uh, people who write pieces like this get right to the point, as you did in this segment, how to fail at building a program. What are the elements to make sure we avoid doing in building a program like this? So I think, I think the most important thing, and by the way, it's not always obvious what success is, but if you can determine what failure would look like and then drive away from that, that is certainly an initial steer. Uh, so one of the things that I think is at the core of all of our comments about uh, how to fail is essentially uh, there needs to be a conscious decision made about how practitioner-focused versus how theory-focused the academy should be, and then understand that once it gets started and once it starts to produce graduates, it's going to have a cascading effect on government service and then industry overall. And from my perspective, you know, and having been at the Naval Postgraduate School, it's understanding that when you have a set of, you know, professionals who are focused on solving real problems, leveraging the best technology, that you end up with something really amazing and it's about providing the solutions that our country needs not just you know something that's going to sit on a shelf and gather dust todd lyons harrison schramm thanks very much for the conversation great to have you here thank, thank you. you up next trusting the military to deliver on funding for technology straight ahead on government matters the role of trusted capital in the defense industrial base don't forget if you miss an episode of government matters you can find it on our website govmatters.tv we'll be right back Companies that need funding for technologies that may benefit the U.S. military have a safe source now to get that money. The Trusted Capital Marketplace is providing an alternative to what the Defense Department calls adversarial capital. General Hawk Carlisle, U.S. Air Force retired president and CEO of the National Defense Industrial Association. Hawk, welcome back. Last time we were on the, you were on the program, we touched on this briefly. Define those terms for me, please. Adversarial capital and trusted capital. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. It's great to be back. It's good to see you again, Francis. I, I don't think people really well understand what the, the Chinese in particular and, and our potential adversaries out there are doing. And it's they're taking advantage of what we consider an open marketplace. So open marketplace is great. Friends, allies, partners, companies within the United States can gain things from each other and learn from each other. And, and, and the companies can... Uh, uh, can grow together and, and be innovative and create new things. What the Chinese have figured out is that the right inflection points when things are either prototyping or 
uh, go into commercialization where small businesses and startups in particular uh, need capital to keep afloat. And the Chinese, what they do is invest that capital uh, and kind of in a backdoor way are able to take that intellectual property, that innovative uh, ideas um, because they have a capital investment and take that uh, take that technology away from the United States. They cut the corner and they do it via predatory investments and coercive economic policies. The, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States is one potential overseer here. Why isn't oversight from CFIUS enough at this moment? Why is this still happening, Hawk? Well, it's because there, CFIUS does a really good job at, at when it meets certain thresholds. Um, and if there's a, a certain amount of a stake and it's a known adversary investment, but, you know, again, the Chinese using open markets are very good at going around those, you know, being just below a threshold where CFIUS would get engaged or having multiple different investment firms at smaller and smaller stakes. But when you put them together, uh, they can uh, they can still take that intellectual property, uh, but they don't reach the CFIUS, CFIUS thresholds. And of course, the problem of course, with the Chinese is also the MilCiv fusion is everything that the Chinese civilian and commercial enterprise do, the government has access to and can take at will. So CFIUS is a great uh, a great approach, and and the strengthening of CFIUS is very important. Uh, but we also need this trusted capital marketplace. How does that marketplace work, and is it enough to achieve what we need to achieve here to get to those lower thresholds to help these companies when they're really in their nascent stages? Well, we just kind of got started with it, and my hats off Secretary Ellen Lord and what she did in moving this forward, and Secretary Esper is. Right now we have about 100 firms and about $20 billion dollars of trusted capital from uh, from uh, capital you know from capital firms that can invest in it, uh, but it needs to grow and get bigger. So it's a good start. I think the next phase will be friends, partners, and allies. You know, you can think the United Kingdom, Australia, other NATO partners, perhaps Japan, maybe Korea, uh, and their capital investment could be part of that as well. So we grow not only as a nation but as partners and allies. Um, so it's a great start. Um, but I think we need, uh, we got more work to do. Is there a place to appeal to companies who have a vested interest in selling to the Defense Department to say, if you're profitable and you have the opportunity, this is a good place for you to put your investment for your own interests, for your shareholders' interests, as well as for the interests of the nation? Because it sounds to me like these are the kinds of investments that it would make sense for, for uh, uh, a member of the traditional DIB to want to be a part of. Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly right. And it is a case where we, you know, I think the the firms uh, reaching out to venture capitalists to put money into this, knowing that they're going to be a, a, a good source of, of uh, revenue and a good earnings per share uh, as these technologies are developed and come forward. And if you look at what happened during COVID, the defense industrial base was kind of a safe haven in some ways um, because it kept operating through the entire time of COVID and still is. So it is a it is a good way uh, for the the capital investment as well as firms to invest money into this. Um, and I think uh, you know uh, we we worked even government wise. So we we are, at NDIA have worked on Section 4003 of taking that money that wasn't used for that and putting it into the small business innovation research funds to allow some of that money to get to phase two and phase three for these small business and innovators to bring their products forward. You mentioned China as being the primary player in this marketplace, in the, in the 
the adversarial capital marketplace hawk, and that's, uh, that fits with all the reading that I've done on this. Is there a reason that we don't see Russia there? Is it just because of their overall economic situation not being particularly healthy where China has the money, or is there some other factor here? No, it's predominantly that. I mean, I would agree with your comment. Uh, you know, the Chinese, I think, if you just look, they're basically the same economy, size of economy as we have, and our two nations are so far ahead of everybody else. Um, you know, I, I often say that I think uh, Xi Jinping has uh, got a good hand to play because of the strength of his economy. I don't think he's as good a strategist. I think Vladimir Putin has a weak hand to play because his economy is so bad. But strategically, he's, he's actually making smarter strategic moves. What will you follow along this line of, of trusted and adversarial capital? What needs to happen next, and who do you think should do it, Hawk? Well, I think uh, it, it's uh, predominantly, it'll certainly start in the Department of Defense, but I think uh, in commerce, in Treasury, kind of across the government, I think uh, our commercial enterprise needs to be aware of this as well. The commercial products that have great technology. I mean, there's horror stories about, uh, about um, you know, small businesses looking for capital. They get adversary capital, they get sucked up, in the, and that technology is gone. And it may not have any applicability to defense, but it's a technology that would be part of our economy and part of growing our economy, and it's gone because it's been taken by uh, the Chinese in particular. So I think it needs to expand to, to the other departments inside the government. Hawk Carlisle, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you very much, friends. Great to see you, my friend. I'm Cherise Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. In tonight's event spotlight, this year's virtual AUSA conference includes four days of breaking Army news, seminars, and interactive virtual exhibits. You'll hear from the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of the Army, the Chief of Staff, the Sergeant Major, and a lot more. It happens October 13th through 16th, and you can learn more at govmatters.tv slash events. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.